Welcome to the Mwango Spaces. We hold this every Friday from around 8 p.m. We just make sure that we have top conversations, topical issues. And today we didn't intend to have a Twitter space, but I think some of the issues that have been raised up this week have been very hot in such a case that we needed to have a Twitter space about the topic of potatoes and supply chains, uh, especially. We are all aware, like, especially in the past year, we've been having issues to do with supply chains around the world. It started uh, along uh, the time there was an issue around the Swiss Canal. I think that that's part of the reasons that KFC gave for the fact that they ran out of chips this week. So we wanted to interrogate the question and to help us do that is our co-host, Ramanyang. So I'm going to let him pick over from here. So the structure is we're going to have 45 minutes of just the speakers engaging us in conversation. And then after that, we'll switch over to the audience. The intention is to take a few people, but if you have questions, please DM us below our pinned tweet. You can also write the questions there. I can see a couple of requests coming in to speak. We try to limit those because having too many people speaking at the same time is usually an issue. So. We cordially ask most of the questions to be directed below the pinned tweet. So without further ado, uh, let me welcome Rama, who will welcome our speakers, and then we can continue with the conversation and I'll occasionally pop in to help out as needed. Santa Santa Eric. And welcome everyone to this first edition of the Mongo Spaces. I believe this is the first one that's being held for the year. So much ado about the humble tuber, the, the potato. And it's not every day that, especially from my perspective, given what we do uh, on a daily basis, we speak about trade, we speak about investment, we speak about economic policy, but it's not often that you get an opportunity to actually get one story that brings all of these fantastic ideas together. And it inspires a lot of widespread attention and involvement in the way that this particular um, event has. We've got a fantastic panel uh, lined up for you with people who are knee deep um, in the industry, both as consumers, but also on the supply side as well. We've got Mohamed Hersi, who's a renowned hotel manager in Kenya, huge supporter of the Build Kenya, Buy Kenya movement. I've had some pretty interesting discussions with him on various aspects of economic policies that's being applied in this particular part of the world. You'll be hearing from him in a bit. We also happen to have Kavambi Karia. She's a sustainable agriculture specialist, huge advocate of sustainable uh, food systems. She's bringing a point of view here of how do we actually build these systems that we say we want to deliver better quality, world-class quality potatoes, and also just build the supply chains that ensure that we can get these tubers out of the farm and onto our tables as fast and as efficiently and as safely as possible within this particular um, price point. We also happen to have Leonard Nodachi, a hospitality entrepreneur and professional, great experience in building scalable brands in the restaurant space. He's bringing a, a practitioner's point of view. Leonard has over the years provided me with very interesting counter arguments and checkpoints about the reality of actually doing business in Kenya, particularly in the restaurant and hospitality space. So I'm certainly sure he'll bring an interesting view with regards to how this specific issue needs to be solved. I believe we'll also have Linda Achan a little later on uh, in the conversation. She's a strategist and entrepreneur. Her, her expertise is in industrial food tech, and she's going to bring in the perspective of how to build these food tech systems at scale. But also remember, we're operating in a relatively large global market, right? We're going to be talking about the question of trade. How do we get potatoes from point A to point B in the most efficient manner? If Kenya is not essentially able to grow these spuds at a specific cost point, is it perhaps more efficient to simply just get them from 
a different location, perhaps within Comessa, perhaps within the EAC. We'll be exploring those in a bit more detail in the course of the hour. First 60 seconds to the speakers uh, on the call. Your opening views on this particular issue. Mohammed, let's start with you. Thank you, Ramak. Good evening, everyone. And uh, thank you very much for this invite. Firstly, this debate that has come up about nothing but price is quite interesting because uh, suddenly we're being told that, look here, guys, being an agricultural country, you're not even in a position to supply simple potatoes to some fast food chain in Kenya. It is something that many Kenyans have never realized, but those of us in the hospitality and restaurant business already knew that fact, and we did bring it up on many occasions. But I'm glad that it is finally a known-known now that this is what has been going on. It is something that debate now we need to have now, and it's just not going only going to be about fries. It's going to be about many other things, so that Kenya is just not left to become uh, a net importer and uh, and a consumer nation. We need to be in production as well. Okay, uh, Leonard, you're on the consumption side of things. Um, what did you make of this great potato war? Good evening, Rama, and uh, good evening, all, and thank you for having me. I echo what um, uh, Mohammed has said in that the importation of food or foodstuffs in a Kenyan context is something that has been on the rise for years. Huh? I dare say maybe the last two decades. We have systematically, item by item, been unable to feed ourselves as a nation. We import way more than I think the average Kenyan is aware, maybe because not all those importations are taking place from overseas, because we do import a lot from our neighbors. I've been privileged to have, at one time in my career, run a restaurant company that was operating in two East African markets, and I was quite surprised at the difference in pricing. For example, when it comes to uh, fresh produce between two neighboring countries, and when you dig deeper into it, we have been left behind on, on that scope. And so while it's uh, unfortunate on the retract side to see one of our members take quite a, a significant beating on the streets of Twitter, I think it's a very worthy conversation for us to have as a nation as to how do we interrogate where we are and what we can be and how we can be better. All right. There's quite a bit of work to do on the supply side. And that's where you come in, Mikanambi, because we, we are a net food importer on so many levels, even with respect to seed, for example, the only crop, in fact, that we're self-sufficient in certified seed productions, I understand it, is in maize, but certainly not in wheat, certainly not in potatoes and not in other crops. So. When you saw this debate raging on the streets of Twitter, what did you make of it? Thank you. I think I'm probably on the other side of the debate because um, I support the contest that, that, of course, we need to protect our local and national interests. But fundamentally, I think this conversation is really about whether we have built the capacity in our economy to the point where they can compete globally and economically empower our citizens. And my view, we need an agricultural sector that is well-organized, that is well-done, and we need the government to step in and create an enabling environment for the supply chain to function from farm to food, and including the infrastructure, including the market system, including the, the engagement with, with private sector. Okay, and, and we'll get to the, the, the business of building that enabling environment a little later in the hour, but I want to start with the question of standards, because I guess for a lot of 
for those people who are following this entire conversation, the, the initial response was, but these are just potatoes. I mean, what are we talking about when we say that we can't deliver the quality of potatoes that KFC is looking for, at least the local franchise holder is looking for within this market? This is a question to both you, Mohammed, and, uh, and Leonard. When we say potatoes need to be of this specific standard, as a hotelier, what does that mean? Rama, if you ask me as a hotelier, when it comes to standards of, let's simply put French fries, what are we looking at? Kenya, we have very many hotels and very many restaurants, and we are farming nation. And when you look at the kind of uh, potatoes uh, we produce, it's something that actually qualifies almost to become uh, organic. It just the other day we started using chemicals. So when you look at standards, it doesn't mean that the current hotels and restaurants, including international chains that have come to town, apart from now KFC, it does not mean that they don't have standards. They also do have standards because when we are receiving the supplies of potatoes, for instance, there are specific sizes. You just don't take anything and everything. Yeah. So once you've done that, the next point is the preparation. What do you do with a potato? So what normally happens is that there's a lot of input that goes into it. Is it just a question of the size of the potatoes or does it have to be a specific cultivar of potato? Or does it have to be a specific species? Walk us through a bit more of that process because it would be useful, I think, for a lot of people listening in to get a feel for why, at least in the industry, from a consumer perspective, a potato is not just a potato. Hello, Mohammed, are you there? Okay. I think we've lost them. In very simple terms, no, a potato is not just a potato. And I think you can see that when you do your shopping for potatoes in the supermarket, you have many different varieties and there are some varieties you want that are good for chips, for example. So we have had some traditional varieties that were grown and uh, increasingly we are seeing different varieties that are coming into the market. So we do have two or three varieties that are good for making chips. Without getting too technical, water content of the potato is a significant uh, factor in that. And water content, the less water the potato has and the more uh, fibrous matter, the longer it, it sits on a shelf and the better it is for producing chips. That's a very simple layman's explanation. So. The answer to your question is, yes, you're right. Not all potatoes are equal. There are some potatoes that are better, but we operate in a market that has two or three uh, good potatoes for making uh, French fries. And that is what that local market uses. So what's a typical turnaround time? I'm, I'm just thinking of this in a theoretical sense. If I deliver half a ton of potatoes to you, what's a turnaround time between you receiving them and then those turning into spuds or chips on a client's plate? That would be a brand by brand uh, question. I think it would differ, but in very simple terms, what would happen is it's, it's not different from uh, the home front. Maybe uh, what you're dealing is with volumes. So you come and you peel your potato and cut it into French fries. You select it into whatever sizes, or you receive your potatoes. You select the, the sizes that you want. You peel them, wash them, uh, cut them into spuds. And then at that point you make a decision majority of the Kenyan market and majority of the chains in Kenya and consumers, I dare say, like fresh chips. We're not a market that is a fan of frozen chips. And so from there, you uh, blanch them. Blanching is just a technical term for par cooking, uh, partly cook them. And then after that, you make them to order 
uh, once. And I think we've slightly lost uh, Leonard there. Um, can I be, if I may bring you in on this, because you wrote a very fascinating thread on Twitter. When this entire conversation was really heating up on Twitter, you, when KFC showed up in the market, you said, okay, I think I can actually come in here and be a supplier for this particular restaurant chain. Walk us through what happened next after you said, hey, this is an interesting opportunity. I'd like to jump in. Right. I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding about what KFC and these other global fast food chains require from the suppliers when they say they want chips. And I know most of us are probably thinking of, you know, you harvest potatoes and slice them. But in fact, what we are talking about is a product that has undergone significant value addition. And so these potatoes that these guys are getting from Egypt, they're not just chopped and blanched. They are fried in specific ingredients. They are flash frozen, transported in cold storage and so on. And all of this to uh, sort of ensure that uniform standards, you know, that crispiness, the perfectly golden color, and also for internal efficiency. Because when you walk into a KFC, you don't see a bunch of people back there peeling potatoes and stuff like that. So this is part of that efficiency. And so it's not simply a question of whether we can grow and harvest the potatoes. It's also a question of whether we have the capacity for that. And, and why doesn't that value addition capacity exist locally? In my view, it has to do with the enabling environment. If you imagine what kind of a supplier would be able to do that, you have to think about the infrastructure, right? The, affordability of power, the ability to produce the crops consistently and be a consistent supplier and to deal with all the infrastructure challenges we have and still be able to supply to KFC at a competitive price. So I think that's part of the problem. I think the enabling environment and, and all of this supporting infrastructure is critically like Dr. David D, of course, put up an interesting uh, thread as well. I believe it was in the course of the week in relation to that particular question. And the, the basic gist of it, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a rather crude summary here. At, at a specific price point, given all the, the, the factors that you've mentioned, a lack of access to credit, a lack of access to crop insurance or limited uptake in crop insurance as well, the limited yields as you actually get, at least in this particular end of the world, that for some people, it just might not be worth it to actually get into the potato space and try and be a potato supplier. But what are your views on that argument? I think it's a solid argument because at the end of the day, it's business and the business case needs to make sense for KFC, but it also needs to make sense for the farmer. So if there's not incentive enough to participate in the market, then the farmer has no reason to. And the same for KFC, if there's no incentive, uh, there's no sort of like cost advantage to participate in the enough flawed ecosystem, I want to call it flawed for the purpose of this uh, discussion, then there's no reason to. I, I just want to expand on that a little bit, especially to understand where farmers are coming from, because just looking through some of the resources we're referring to in the course of this conversation, there was a 2019 paper that the IFC put together at the pointed out that production targets, at least for this year for potatoes are around 2.5 million tons a year. But in 2017, we only produce around 1.5 million tons. The average yield is around six to 10 tons of potato per hectare. So from a farmer's perspective, if we're going to raise our yields, say from that six to 10 tons per, per hectare level, let's say we're targeting maybe 30 uh, tons per hectare. 
what do we need to get from where we are now to that target range? I think it's a range of things. If you're talking about productivity, then you're talking about the quality of seeds, right? Most of Kenyan farmers, about over 800,000 smallholder farmers, over 96% of them still use uncertified seed, which is typically maybe your neighbor gave you some seed, maybe you saved some from the, the last harvest and so on and so forth. And so at the end of the day, when you're talking about productivity, if you think about where the losses are occurring on the value chain, you are thinking about poor seed quality, you are thinking about pest control. Those are very, very vulnerable to pests, you know, nematodes and wilt and, and all of these uh, pests. It's, it's a really complex ecosystem because, for example, in Egypt, they do crop rotation every five years. We don't do that here. So there's a lot of degradation in terms of quality, in terms of damage because of pests and diseases. And so that affects the productivity. Um, that the farmer is able to get. So when you're looking at Egypt, for example, a farmer is getting over probably, I think the last number I saw, 10 tons per acre. And comparatively in Kenya, it's about three tons per acre, right? So you can see the gap that we need to address in terms of ensuring um, productivity. And, and that really is massive. Okay, we've covered the production side problems that the sector is facing, but I, I want to get back to the consumption side of it. Mohammed and Leonard, now that you're back in the room, does it make any financial sense from your perspective? If you're running a hotel chain, if you're running um, a restaurant chain, to what extent does it make sense for you to invest in building that supply chain, that value addition chain back to the farmer? Or are we just, you know, sitting here tapping to the usual criticism about us online? We sit here, we make noise, but we're not actually willing to, to do the work to build these systems that will allow farmers to actually um, increase their yields and essentially move up the value chain. Leonard, you want to start with that one? Thanks, Rama. I would say based on the scale of the restaurants we have in the market at the moment, uh, it would not be worth it because of the total consumption of uh, potatoes in the market, I think all the restaurants and hotels combined, and sorry, this might be rather old data. I think the last data I have is 2014 data. Of the total potato consumed in the country, 4 to 6% was consumed by restaurants and hotels. That was, like I said, I'm talking about the 2014 numbers. It might have increased, but at that point, like someone was talking about on Twitter, would it be worth the while for someone to invest solely to service the KFC account? And it would not be from a tonnage perspective. If you were to make that make sense, and they are existing, I think we have kind of lost the fact that majority of the restaurant chains in Kenya are consuming local potatoes. We have maybe one or two chains, and of those one or two, they are not the largest that are importing potatoes. So there is already a vibrant local consumption of potatoes. So um, put another way, we might have been making a mountain out of a molehill. I would, I would, I would not say that because we, we are fighting for local, and I'm a big proponent of anything local. So, and it has triggered a conversation, like you said at the beginning, that hasn't been had. And that kind of brings very many sectors, very ma many factors together. This conversation on a simple potato has impact on policy, has impact on supply chain, has impact on foreign direct investment. 
there are many aspects to it and, and it's probably a good thing that it came to, to, to pass so that we can discuss it. Okay. Well, Mohammed, what, what, what about you from your perspective? I, I know you're a big fan of the buy Kenya, build Kenya line of argument. We've clashed on that a few times in the past, but if you're running a hotel team, does it make sense for you to invest in building back that supply chain, that value addition network? down to the millions of smallholder farmers that we have across the country. Mohammed, are you with us? Okay. It does appear that we're having problems with that particular connection. We're going to try and get that sorted out and, and, and get him back. I mean, Leonard, I, I want to bring in an element of this that you've, you've both partially alluded to in your responses uh, a little earlier, the question of food sovereignty. Kenya's largely a food importing nation. And yes, on paper, we've had potential to essentially increase our output, make sure that we have as much of our domestic produce going into the market as things currently stand. But in an environment where A, we're importing a lot of our food and B, the carbon footprint of that food is becoming an important part of policy conversations between Kenya and her trading partners. How do we ensure that we have food sovereignty? How do we grow that domestic yield? while at the same time fending off that problem that will eventually emerge of being told, well, we can't export X, Y, Z to you because we're going to add in the carbon cost of whatever it is we are bringing to your markets. Kadambi, do you want to take that first? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm a climate change and sustainability practitioner. So obviously the question of the carbon footprint is a pretty big one for me, including for KFC. I don't think we should be having a discussion about whether we consume KFC or not, we shouldn't. I think if you talk about the carbon footprint of food and sustainability issues around food and sustainable consumption, then you obviously want to focus on indigenous food and food that is produced and that empowers local farmers. But with that being said, the question of standards and quality control and building sustainable food systems is still very relevant. This has been an issue that's come up over and over again. We need to make sure that the food we eat is safe for Kenyans, right? So I think we are belaboring the point of whether we, we want to meet the food quality standards that are required by the EU and the FDA, but not thinking about whether we deserve to eat food that actually also meets the standard, both for, for our own consumption, but also, even if you were to depart from, say, the factory farming and, and global food chains, fast food chains, when you start thinking about sustainable farming and when you start thinking about crops like coffee and tea and avocados and all, all horticultural produce, this question of standards and traceability and uh, quality control still applies and in an even more stringent manner because now you start thinking about social impact and environmental impact. If, if I may just jump in briefly there, um, yes. just walk us, walk us through the traceability argument, because it did come up. I saw it coming up over and over again, especially from people within the industry saying, look, if you're going to run you know, a restaurant chain of this particular scale, traceability matters. Traceability is important. But for a lot of the people in the conversation online, it was like, what are we talking about when we say traceability? Do you really need to be able to figure out that this particular batch of fries that was made and served at this location came from this farm two or three weeks ago. What walk us through how that works in practice? It, it is important for a couple of reasons. And traceability is just basically uh, following how the food is moving through the supply chain, right? So you want to understand how it's produced, how it's processed, 
um, how it's distributed through the, the supply chain, basically. But you want to understand what products and ingredients have gone into it. And this is important for a couple of reasons. One is just when you think about basic traceability, you're thinking about food safety. You want to make sure that the food that people are eating is safe. And that's a big consideration for, it should be even a big consideration for us that our food is safe. So when we talk about, for example, farmers are harvesting crops before they are ready or before the pesticide spraying period has ended, this is what we are talking about because you want to trace the food and make sure that if you're getting pineapples, they were not harvested three days after they were sprayed because that's harmful. Right. And, and I think we can see how that translates into the rates of diseases that we typically didn't have to deal with in the past. The other reason for traceability is from, I want to talk from a sustainability and ESG per, uh, perspective, is because you want to track other issues that are important to, to say buyers or to markets, right? So you're thinking about social sustainability, what the people that worked in these farms, well, women paid a fair amount for their labor, right? So you're thinking about labor issues, about gender issues. Uh, you're thinking about child labor and all of these things, which are very important to stakeholders. Uh, from an environmental perspective, you're also thinking about various aspects of how the food is produced, right? The soil quality, management of water, irrigation, how the food is fertilized. It's a host of things, but effectively the net effect is they tell you a story about your food and and it's really important when you think about not just safety, but what it means to actually empower farmers and the people that produce food for us. Okay. This next question is, is a bit more broad. So I'm just going to put it on the table and Leonard, perhaps you can start take a shot at it because now this is a much wider policy conversation. We say we want better seeds. We say we want better farming infrastructure to be able to actually, you know, track and trace the produce that actually lands on our table and make sure it's well produced. You know, people actually paid a fair wage uh, for producing it. But all of these things inevitably do cost money. And agriculture is, according to central bank data, has a second smallest share of private sector lending that comes in from our bank space. So how do we pay for all of these improvements? that we say are needed, but ultimately it all costs money. So who should put that bill? Should it be restaurants? Should it be consumers? Should it be government? I'll answer your question by piggybacking on what uh, Kathambi said. I think it's important for us to have our standards applied to our markets. And uh, those standards should footed by ultimately the government through our tax shilling because they do contribute to the food safety of the nation. And the food safety of the nation is the safety of the, the citizens of that nation. So ultimately, with regards to implementing of standards in a market, it should not be expected that this is funded by a consumer or this is a policy initiative. It's a policy direction of the country and should be funded by the tax shield. Okay, but uh, the, here's uh, a brief count before I come to, to Mohammed and can I make the same question? Because with respect to how government has essentially spent our money on solving public policy issues, we've essentially been saying for the better part of, I think, two decades now that, no, no, we need just a bit more time to fix our sugar market. Our sugar co production costs are way higher in Uganda. So you do get to a point where you end up asking yourself, yeah, but is government really the best solution here? 
learn it. When Kathambi was briefing um, us about traceability, there's the point that is, I think, scares any restaurant operator that is critical to the traceability debate is an outbreak. We are fortunate that we, we live in a market where we haven't had some of the historical food safety outbreaks that have happened across the world. So like this in some parts of the West. Yeah, there have been several in the UK, the US, and that's when you'll appreciate the value of traceability. Because let's assume you have a salmonella outbreak in chicken, yeah, and you're unable to trace where it has come from, that particular chicken. That means you literally have to write off whatever entire stock in the market, not in your unit, whatever entire stock is available in the market and burn it down. And then you begin to appreciate why traceability is important. Because when you're able to localize this, now I struggle to see how that can be anyone else's responsibility. Hypothetical count. My, but give, given how fragmented our supply chains tend to be, so for the sake of arguments, and my assumption here is that, say, Radisson's potato suppliers are not necessarily the same ones that Mohammed's using, and they're not necessarily the same ones yours or when you were in, in, in the restaurant space. Isn't that fragmentation, to some extent, providing us with a natural hedge against those problems? Okay. Let me jump on, on that, and I just hope I don't get disconnected. I keep hearing about traceability, and Rama, I'll outright say that is one big excuse that we should not buy. The same chain of KFC have confirmed that they actually buy and source the chicken locally. Chicken is a protein. And chicken is prone to serious food poisoning because it's a protein. But here we have potatoes that suddenly we are being told, look here, folks, because of traceability, I'm sorry, we don't trust your source and we will not be able to buy from you. And today when they've been pushed, they clearly, they eventually say, we can't even share the standard. The standard simply means what is the moisture content? What is the size of the potatoes? That's what we are looking at and the variety that you want. What's the big deal about that? So again, I repeat, Rama, it's just, it's about protectionism. It's about countries insisting to, you know, through multinationals. And this is something host countries need to say, you know what? It is not making sense. And at the end of the day, even when you look at these investors, let me tell you this, the investors in Kenya uh, it's not KFC as KFC. It is locals. It's someone like Rama and Mohammed joining hands and inviting these guys to come and open shop here. What you've just done is to buy the franchise from KFC. So it is not such a big FDI coming into us. And to make matters worse, who are the consumers? Consumers are also Kenyans. So here we are being told that we can take your chicken, but we can't take your potatoes. And the uh, potatoes we're talking about is about frozen potatoes. On, on, on that particular topic, because she's been very strong on, on the traceability argument. Can I be hearing the argument from Mohammed there that, you know, traceability is just an excuse. It's, it's a smokescreen. It's a red herring. What's your response to that? What's your counter? I, I will respond to the KFC relationship. And what I would like to say is that the more complex the supply chain is, the more difficult it is to assure traceability, right? Because if you're thinking about attributing, say, quality or origin of a product to, to the stakeholder, 
it's obviously much easier when you're single sourcing something from KFC, right? And it's even much easier to engage directly with KFC, be very specific about what you want and so on and so forth. And this is why when we talk about other sectors as well, uh, including coffee, including tea, we have specialty formats, people who are contracted directly by say, international businesses to supply directly to them. It is a question of reducing the complexity of a supply chain. Now, when you start thinking about potato supply chain and thinking about how many farmers you would engage to sort of aggregate sufficient quantity, it, it makes it uh, more difficult to sort of have a full knowledge and full view of the supply chain. And this is why when just recently KFC said that they were going to source from local farmers, I can almost guarantee you that it's going to be a few farmers, a few specialty farmers. When those of us that say that the government needs to step up is because we would love to see an ecosystem that supports all farmers to participate in whatever benefits, uh, economic benefits, this international business. And just to put some context on, on to Kazambi's point about the ability to essentially aggregate and grow these things at scale. There's an interesting study by Kipra that pointed out that farm holdings that are more than 10 hectares in size in this country, there's been a reduction of at least 86 percent between 1994 and 2015, 2016, thereabouts, a reduction of 86 percent. By 2015, 2016, there are only about 6,700 such farms um, across the country. So to, to your point, that does tell us that there's a bit of a problem in trying to essentially ensure that you have as many people as possible, or rather broad base of farmers who can actually deliver this sort of spuds that would be needed at scale. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Okay, um, I should point out that we have Asif Khan from Ando Foods, who is currently in the room. Asif, we've known each other for a while, first met because of our love of photography and, and, and shooting uh, documentaries. But now you run essentially an outfit that is, as I understand it, it's basically a dark kitchen outfit. So start by explaining to our listeners what a dark kitchen is, and then you can give us your perspective on the conversations we've had so far. Hey, Rama, how are you? Um, great to connect with um, everyone. So basically, Ando, uh, the company we're building now, came about from the need that I recognized when I was at Java House. So I was previously the group head of marketing at Java House, the delivery business for the group. We understood that Sub-Saharan Africa, it's getting urbanized. And what happens when urbanization is happening is homes are getting smaller, kitchens are getting smaller. So in essence, people want food on demand, right? A family units have been broken up. So last year, we started testing this hypothesis. And uh, in January was when I started thinking about this. In March, COVID happened. And actually, it accelerated our growth. So in uh, September, we raised some funds from uh, Venture Capital. Savannah Fund was our first investor. And we started testing this hypothesis, okay, that we can build these dark kitchens. As Globally, it's a big success. We, you know, you've got players like Rebel Foods in India, which has now raised about $700 million. Uh, you've got Kitopi in uh, Dubai, which has raised, you know, $400 million, doing the same thing that we're trying to do for Sub-Saharan Africa. I, I can't disclose how much we've raised, but it's a sizable amount, which helps us grow this business in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. Now we're looking at eight figures or we're looking at nine figures? Well, it's eight figures. I so it's something that maybe we will discuss in a couple of months, but maybe to give you an idea of the round we're in, we're now raising our Series A. So Series A is usually $10 million and upwards. So anyways, so we started 
building this business out. And we've now got two brands. Basically what we do is we build these commercial kitchens in high traffic areas. We look for basically the worst real estate in, in the most premium areas. All right. So if you look at our first kitchen, it's in this like dark neighborhood in Westlands, but we're killing it over there and on our delivery sales. We then opened a second location in Village Market trying to test the hypothesis of people picking up orders. And that's also doing really well. We have two brands. One is Khan's uh, Pakistani food. Our bet is on the biryani. And uh, number two is curries. We have a couple of brands we're also launching in the next quarter. And without mentioning names, we're also in talks with some FMB players to take over some of their operations and scale this with technology. Okay. So in your specific um, context, you're very focused on the e-commerce side of things. How are you dealing with the question of a sourcing ingredients locally, building that supply chain network as, and making it as robust as possible and also implementing the sort of traceability requirements, if I can use that word very loosely here, to essentially say that I know that this batch of potatoes that came into this specific order came from that farm in Yandarua or that farm in Nakuru. This is an interesting question because some of our investors include people like Savannah Fund, 4DX Ventures, you know, which has also invested in some of the biggest tech companies in Africa. We have also Shandaria Capital as one of our investors, right? This is a, lo a local investor and others. Now, talking about supply chain, when we started the business, of course, we were buying everything at retail prices. And it does make sense to do it at that point. Because at that point, we're not interested in bettering our prices or bettering our costs. But hey, where can we get this, our stock fastest, okay? Now... Recently, what has started happening, and one of our investors also invested in this company, it's called uh, Top Up Mama. And what these guys do is they're just aggregating restaurant demand, and then they just give you an e-commerce portal, and they're, they're also killing it. They're doing really, really well. They supply now thousands of restaurants. Uh, you can just go to their website, order oil, order sugar, and all this stuff. So we've been primarily using them now, and we get two. One thing, we get um, a consistent supply, and number two, the pricing. Now, for... Items like potatoes, rice. Rice is one of our biggest buys. Unfortunately, right now, we haven't been able to get that locally. So we actually go direct to the importer. Yeah, That's an interesting one. Elaborate on that rice question, because I'm pretty sure that a lot of the guys who are listening to this will say, yeah, but you know, you've got rice growing exactly. at scale. Yeah. So is, is, is a question here that ultimately a combination, if you can essentially deliver products that meets a specific quality target and it's a specific price point, doesn't matter where it comes from, can be Pakistan, can be rice from Thailand. That's essentially what's going to get into your um, inventory as opposed to local produce. Yeah. So again, it's the same thing with the potatoes, right? We're just not big enough, to be honest with you. And we wouldn't even be big enough, even by the end of this year, when we hope to have built uh, 15 branches, right? We will still not be big enough to be able to build a supply chain on rice. And that's the same thing I said about KFC. I earlier tweeted about this, that KFC is just not big enough, right? They're just not big enough to, be able to justify spending millions of dollars on building the supply chain. For us, we will not be big enough until we're at least 100 branches to be able to justify that effort and uh, money investment into building our own, say, farms, uh, tying up with farmers to get the right rice. So I do see us for the near future, actually for the the next two years is importing our rice, to be honest with you. Okay. I want to go to a question that was raised on the, the, the Twitter threads in relation to this particular post from at Uhuronomics. And the argument being made here is this. The issue, and I'm reading the quote here literally, the issue is not just imported potatoes. 
The threat of concern is that imports equals exported jobs. Now, my first instinctive response to that is that's essentially an economic fallacy. But I want to see what the panelists think about this particular issue. Mohammed, uh, then Leonard, then Kadambi. Imports equal exported jobs. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Where do you stand? Well, let me take that. Rama, when you produce for export, it means that you're creating employment for your people. When I travel, and specifically when I go to developing countries, and let me take the example of uh, Thailand, I recall I will walk into a supermarket and my wife will ask me, what the heck do you want to see in a supermarket? And I say, I just want to see what they produce and what they import. And let me tell you, 95% of virtually everything is made in Thailand. Talk of even abilities, whether it is in the bathroom, talk about Nivea, anything, Protex, whatever, Colgate. Today, as we speak, in the 70s, we were producing our own toothpaste. Today, Rama, Kenya does not produce toothpaste. But Tanzania next door actually is producing toothpaste. So there's a serious disconnect that Kenya is becoming one serious importer of virtually everything. We actually behave like we are diamond or oil producing country. Even the oil producers like Saudi Arabia or Emirates, all these guys are now embracing manufacturing. Let me provide a, a basic answer to this. If Uganda, for instance, can produce milk at a cheaper price point, same quality, cheaper price point than Kenyan producers can. If Uganda can produce eggs at a cheaper price point than Kenyan producers can, why should we say no to that? Because effectively gating this market for Kenyan producers is the same thing as saying, the flip side of that argument is that we're telling consumers, you're stuck with this you have to spend a much bigger proportion of your limited budget on buying food. And we're denying you access to the same thing at a cheaper price. I think, Rama, we need to strike a balance. We are not suggesting that we block and we say, look here, you must buy Kenyan because it's made in Kenya and we want to create employment even when we're not competitive enough. And you have a valid point that this discussion has been put across many times. Uganda, Tanzania are able to produce a lot of these things far cheaper than us. And of course, that's where now government comes in. There are a lot of processes involved and there are many things and all the bureaucracy, the red tape, there are many things, cost of power, name it, okay? So we must get our ducks in a row if we are going to compete. But of course, we can't turn around and say, you must buy Kenyan because uh, we want to support Kenyans. We must also be what competitive at the end of the day. Leonard, when you stand on this entire narrative that imports equal exported jobs, it seems if, uh, we've lost Leonard on that particular question. Kadambi, do you want to jump in on this one? Because I mean, Kenya is still a net food importer. These questions around, are we exporting capital? Should we be exporting capital when our neighbors can do these same things, perhaps at a better price point, maybe at a lower carbon footprint? Uh, where do you jump in on this argument? Well, of course, I agree with, like, uh, Mohammed has articulated that we need to sort of maintain an appropriate balance of imports and exports. What I would also add is that we also need to sort of uh, maintain that balance in, in a very pragmatic way and one that sort of recognizes where we have problems that we can fix and where we have problems or deficiencies or shortcomings that we are not able to plug. In that case, it makes sense to import. But if we are talking about a sector that could do with significant improvement and sort of contribute to that balance of payments, 
then of course we should, you know, move forward and sort of fix those problems. And so it's like Mohammed is saying, you have to kind of strike the balance where you're also sort of solving the problems that reduce your reliance and input. So not not doing essentially all we've done in the sugar sector, where we keep going to Comesa and saying, we need to keep these tariff safeguards in place, but then we're not actually fixing the domestic supply problems that make our cost of producing sugar to be essentially extraordinarily high and make them uncompetitive. Absolutely. Exactly. Like you said, we we need to fix the domestic problems and, and those cut across several sectors, tea, coffee, sugar, milk. It will probably be easier to figure out where we don't have problems. But I should point out that Linda Chan is now finally in the room with us. Linda, I've been listening to some of the conversations here for a bit. I, I want to give you a chance to weigh in um, on what you've heard so far. Hello, everyone. So did you want to ask me something for me to respond to or should I introduce myself? Please guide me. Please, uh, please start with introducing yourself. Tell us what you do and how you came into this great potato war. My name is Linda Chan. I am an entrepreneur based out of the UK, I'm in the energy sector on the food tech side, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Nature Wrap UK. We are a food technology company and we have a food preservation system, a patented system that extends the shelf life of fresh cut potatoes and other horticulture. And our focus is the potato processing sector. And I have brought that to the UK from Australia. And we're now working with the processors who wish to integrate our process into their production line. So I have a team of inventors and scientists that support the work that I'm doing. Okay. So when it comes to where you're based at the moment and, and the UK in, in some cases is almost a bit like Kenya in the sense that it's a huge net importer of a lot of the food that is consumed across the British Isles. And in this environment, we keep talking about the carbon footprint of the, the food that we consume, and we need to consume things a lot more locally. Where do you strike that balance between growing things locally, even though it might not necessarily be viable to do so, versus essentially just opting for imports where it makes you know commercial sense to do that? The UK imports about 700,000 metric tons of processed potato products from the EU market. And that is the problem that we are trying to, to solve here for two reasons. Number one is to reduce the carbon footprint because the items are imported in via trucks. So that is congestion as well as pollution in the air. And then the second thing we're solving is that to develop a local industry within the UK to support the growers as well as the processors. The balance is that if we have a secure supply system in the UK, we then reduce the dependency on the imports from the EU and the, the prices have also increased because of Brexit. So there's now an urgency for the UK economy to provide an urgent solution. And that's what we're doing. And, and will those domestic producers be able to compete on price? Even let's say for argument pre-Brexit, would they have been able to compete on price? Um, with producers uh, across the channel in the EU? Yes, they can. For what we're doing, yes, because of the scale of what we are going to be developing. So if you're looking at, say, maybe producing a few tons, that won't be competitive. You need the volumes. So after we do our pilot, the plan is to create a factory via JV partnership of at least 20,000 metric tons uh, per year. That will then make, make economic sense. Otherwise, it doesn't. 
Okay, so scale is, is absolutely important, but uh, let me just shift the, the conversation very briefly to the tariff side of it, because I remember a couple of years ago, there was all these questions around quote unquote, a carbon tax being imposed on Kenyan horticultural produce, our veggies, our cut flowers, it is flying into the European market. But given how integrated these food chains are across Africa and Europe, how should we be thinking about the potential for carbon taxes um, affecting our ability to export our tea, our coffee, our veggies, at least for the next five years, if not the next decade? I think the way that could be addressed is to provide incentives for companies, organizations that are, that are able to produce locally and perhaps provide the bulk of the supply in the local market at a competitive price. For example, let's say 50% or 60%, and they get incentives for doing that. And then they are allowed to say, for example, to export the 40%. That might be a way of doing it because if there's money involved, then people are more inclined to want to take that route. That could be a possibility. Okay. I want to bring this uh, back to our little side of the pond with respect to the demand side of things, uh, Mohammed, Leonard, and Asif, the continental free trade area is this one big thing that we've kept talking about for years now, about trying to build a big domestic market. And as I pointed out a little earlier, Leonard, in some cases, producers in Uganda or Tanzania are able to produce the same thing at a much cheaper price than we can here in Kenya. How then do we build those regional supply chains to essentially ensure one domestic supply is available and it's, it's of the quality that we need for our citizens? But how do we build out those supply chains across East Africa and across a continental free trade area? Leonard, let's start with you. Oh dear, I think we've lost Leonard again. Mohammed, do you want to jump in on that question? Building regional supply chains? Because if someone can supply onions, for example, like the ones I see coming into Marikiti, more for the not, the ones from Tanzania come into this market virtually week in, week out, and they're basically propping up the Kenyan food market. So. Would it make sense for you to, to build out a regional supply chain, perhaps in Tanzania and Uganda, as opposed to doing it in Kenya? When it comes to regional trade, obviously it's more beneficial uh, to the region if we were even to import some of these things from our neighbors, as opposed to all the way in Egypt or all the way from the U.S. So when it comes to capacity building, you realize that in the 70s, we had very strong agriculture sector where we had extension officers will actually go out in the villages and help people and even farms. But today we have two things. Number one, agriculture has virtually almost collapsed apart from the big multinationals that are well supported by their own companies. But when it comes to middle level and the small scale, it's virtually almost dying. And then the other bit also, which is a big danger, is that all the good arable land is being converted into real estate. That's another big challenge we face today in Kenya. So if we don't do something and we try to halt this particular move, what will happen is that next to Tanzania and also Uganda will continue to feed us. And the delay they close their doors on us, we will have nothing to eat. The people talk about food security, but hardly do they ever talk about food sovereignty. One day you may have the money, but your money cannot buy you anything because there's no food to buy. That's why the likes of Israel, the likes of Qatar, even Saudi Arabia, are now looking at countries elsewhere 
where they can actually develop their own farms and they're able to supply themselves and assure themselves of what they call food sovereignty. And that's a big debate that the government and policymakers ought to have. It's actually not just about private sector. This is about government doing the right thing and making sure that they support farmers. Because in my opinion, I don't think we've supported farming enough. Can I be going to weigh in on this? Uh, the question of building um, regional supply chains, because it, you know, at face value, Tanzania and Uganda clearly are better at, at producing some of these things at scale um, than we are. Can I be first and then I'll come back to you, Lenny? Yes. I mean, to the questions, first of all, food sovereignty. I think as Kenya, we should actually face up to the fact that we are not uh, food secure and we, are, we don't have any food sovereignty, right? We, we don't have the food. By most accounts, we don't have the money. But to your question on regional sort of food systems, and I think I can touch on the, the PTA because that's probably an area that I've worked in. When you think about what the priorities under the, the continental framework are, they are still very much in line with what we are discussing today, right? So we are still talking about sustainable land management practices. We are still talking about improving infrastructure and market access. We are still talking about food productivity. We are still talking about technology, we are still talking about research and all of these things. A friend of mine in regards to this discussion said it very succinct, but although KFC is what started this discussion, what KFC wants might be what they need, but it doesn't conflict with what we need as a country and as a continent, right? There's no conflict between what we actually need to move forward and what they are probably asking for. Just to jump in briefly, because a lot of critics would point out with justified skepticism that at the AU level, we tend to talk about these high level ideas that we need to trade more with each other, but governments are very, very quick to think domestically as opposed to, to regionally. So in Kenya's case, for example, we know, know for decades that we are absolutely hopeless at producing sugar at a decent price, but we still persist with the myth that we need to protect our industry. And agricultural produce tends to be the things that we impose tariff protections on very, very aggressively. So in that sense, can the CFTA really live up to the promise of enhancing trade in a continent where agriculture is at least 30 to 50% of GDP? Well, it could if we kind of united toward whatever the ideal of Pan-Africanism is, right? Because if we are not able to think as a continent, as an integrated continent, uh, economically, politically, socially, then we'll always have these conversations around nationalistic and sort of pro protectionism agendas. And so I think there's a discussion to be had there around what sort of frameworks, what kind of financial monitoring institutions support and enhance sort of that feeling of safety around your national interest. Okay. Is Leonard back on the, yes, he is. Okay. So Leonard, please pick up that particular point. I think Mohammed, uh, given the example of Thailand was a great example because the question is, do you want to own an ecosystem or do you just want to have the profits of a single sector? And Thailand are showing that owning the ecosystem is much more beneficial to the economy. The frustration we have as Kenyans is that we produce some of this stuff and we import some of it. So, which points to the fact that we are producing inefficiently and hence why the cost is high. What if we were to produce efficiently? 
how can we produce some onions which are acceptable and then have to import 30 to 40 percent of our onions from Tanzania at a cheaper price? Environmentally, there's not much different climate-wise between Tanzania and Kenya. So what are the Tanzanians doing to produce onions at a much cheaper date than, than Kenyans? And those are the questions that I think we need to put on the table and task the leadership to address because we can produce and match these prices and we can produce it to the benefit of our economy, but we're not. Okay. I, I should acknowledge that we've got uh, Tim Kipchumba coming into the, the room at the moment. Tim, you raise an interesting point on your profile and you're basically making the case that yields are one thing, but food waste, the sheer amount of waste that we have and post-harvest losses, that's just a big a problem. Walk us through your thesis. I, I, I grew up in Marag with growing potatoes. And, uh, we are now one of the leading producers as a county. And, and one thing that I see is that farmers would just rather get year, only year demand. So what happens now is that they grow the crop in three months. And then in that three months, there's a massive surplus because three, four other counties are produced. Suddenly, all that potato can move from, I don't know, 2,000 shillings per bag or 3,000 shillings per bag all the way to 400 shillings per bag. And, and so all that potato goes to waste, all of it, literally, they feed it to cows. And so, I mean, I can understand that Kenyans are animated. We are largely, you know, patriotic lot, everyone eats. But I really think that because we produce, we waste now about 25% of the crop. Close to 25% of all our chips are wasted. Now that is a much lower number than the, than the number that Leonard shared earlier. That number Leonard has now gone to about 10%. So 10% of our potatoes is, is sent to restaurants. About 5% of that goes to chips. Now less than 1% actually goes to, to the multinationals. So, I mean, it's a fantastic thing that this has come to be a, a really good topic, but but the farmers could just be better off with cold chain storage. They could be better off with sorting facilities. They could be better off with the, the possibility that there can be an aggregated way of handling excess demand so that if they have an excess supply, that crop is protected, you know, it's sorted. And then when demand is finally year old, we are able to uh, give those farmers income. Because right now, it's impossible to solve for all the traceability because we are looking at about close to a million farmers farming potatoes to just try to solve traceability is very hard. And so I agree with that as a matter of fact, that's a more difficult problem. I certainly do think that we should be doing a lot more like many can. I mean, we should have sunk the 300 billion, a portion of the 300 billion into that we put into SDR and put it into aggregate. We would have more jobs, we would have more income. And I have seen it, I have seen it faster. Uh, a year ago, when COVID broke, I supported a young entrepreneur with a tiny loan, $3,000. Today, she's doing two containers of avocado every single month in export. Our life has changed completely. I mean, much more than you can imagine, as you can, you can tell, because already she's doing about 3 million shillings per month in export. So, of course, if we could turn other country into, into a combination of two things. So one is managing food waste, and then number two, becoming an export-led country. I think like we we'll solve all the problems all at once. Okay, I'm going to 
get down to the market mismatch question in just a moment, because part of my brain's thinking, well, if you have all these potato surplus, that sounds like perfect raw material to essentially turn us into a slight vodka producer at scale. But with respect to the traceability question, because you've also got a background in tech, Tim, is this one of those situations where, and this is a very left field um, idea. Is blockchain tech applicable here, or is it just getting that from concept to something that actually works is more trouble than it's worth? I might be the wrong person to answer that, uh, to be honest. I, I just think that we have bigger problems to try even before we think tech. I think that by the time you optimize for 1% by using blockchain, I think we should already be just optimizing for the 25% by using cold storage solar powered facilities across the country, or by just making sure that a number of entrepreneurs, even in this group today, that are just looking for a quick opportunity next year, that is dollar proven, forex a uh, growing in demand. Imagine export potatoes, FOB fried Mombasa is double farm gate price. Like that's a real opportunity. Like why should we even think tech in that sense? I mean, I think we should be thinking certification. We should be thinking a, a good place at, at the EPZ, uh, fast-tracking these people to get spaces at EPZ, helping them access markets in Somalia, in Europe. But, I mean, if, even just within Africa, I think market is just, it's still decent, even though we right now look like we are importing a lot from Uganda and Tanzania because they've been delivered at it. I mean, I just think that if we can optimize for exports, and then optimize for just protecting farmers from the massive waste that, 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 that comes because we have this timing mismatch in the supply and demand. I mean, yeah. it will take us another decade before we even have to worry about that just 1% that is needed for this multinational. Okay. Can I mean, Linda, I'm, I'm going to come to you on that, that specific point that Tim is raising the mismatch in supply versus demand, there's a built-in opportunity there, but how do we build out that ability to essentially get these potato farmers and this produce out into global markets? Because food demand around the world is not going down. It's just going up. If we have a surplus at specific points in time, it might make sense to essentially get that produce into the markets that need it around the world. How do we do that as a sort of national strategy? Could that be then, Linda? All right. Quite often we have a glut. We have too many potatoes in the market. But the question of why we are not able to access a global markets again comes back to this point around whether we are able to meet the standards that these global markets are asking of us to meet. And I, I know it seems like I'm delivering the point, but we'll just still go back to whether the product, we grew these crops and met the requirements and the regulations on how the food is grown, whether the seed quality, soil quality, fertilization techniques, pests and diseases, planting dates, and all of this were met. If we are not able to do that, it means that we have to stick with the local market. We are not able to sell our product outside the market. And the challenge with that, and, and I think what is so unfortunate about that is the smallholder farmers. And this is why recently, the government came up with the regulations requiring that potatoes are packed in 50 kg bags. Because what happens when we have a glut is you have this middleman going to smallholder farmers, farm gate prices, obviously, because the infrastructure is not available to help farmers take their produce to the market, right? And you find what is typically a 50 kg bags 
a bag, farmers are having to sell it and pack two, 250 kgs of it, for example, right? Because we have a glut, we have surplus, but we have nowhere to take it because we are not accepted into the global market. And this is why I keep insisting that these standards are also what is good for us and good for our farmers. Linda, how do we build those backwards um, linkages into, I know it's, it's a slightly counterintuitive uh-huh. question, considering that you're trying to improve local output in a place the, like the United Kingdom. But if we're looking at a case of trying to essentially say, like, look, you've got this glut, we know that we'll have this surplus in the market in Kenya or in Tanzania or in Uganda at this specific point in time. How do we enable these farmers to meet the standards that will be needed to get that produce into the EU? Because if we can do it for coffee and tea and flowers and different varieties of vegetables, what do we need to do to make sure that can happen for potatoes? I think in regards to your question, what the Kenyan government potentially do is the standards is an issue. So it requires a conceited effort between, let's say, for example, the government, the Ministry of Agriculture, the Potato Council, because the standards are important if you're going to export to the specific to the particular application. So, for example, if you're looking at the uh, McDonald's or KFC or whatever else, they need the varieties for chipping potatoes. It has to be specific to to fries and to to chips, and it needs a dry matter type of potato. If they're looking at the potato, it needs a particular type of potato. So money needs to be spent on research and design to carry out pilot tests to test each particular variety before the country can even think of exporting to the UK. That's what needs, or the EU, wherever else. That's what needs to be done. And then also the other component to it is the, the volume. Because the, the market here requires hundreds of tons of potatoes. So would those farmers in Kenya be able to consistently supply the amount required? That needs to be addressed. So it's a combination of the variety. Does it meet, meet the, the market standard? And then the volume. Because I know things like seeds have been mentioned by the World Bank and so on and so forth um, as a possible solution. But what needs to be considered is that if you're bringing in seeds from, say, the Netherlands or Egypt, the soil composition in Kenya would be different to the ones from where you're bringing the seeds in from. So it may react differently once it's planted. That also needs to be tested in a laboratory. Indeed, it certainly does. Related to that, and this is a question to both you and and Kadambi, if we're developing specific cultivars that work fantastically well with Kenyan soil, say Tim um, is farming potatoes, who should own that intellectual property? Is it one of those situations where the state through Calro puts in the work, the money into the R&D and that specific IP, for lack of a better word, is owned in trust? for Kenyan farmers and therefore the state gets to commercialize it? Well, that depends. Let me answer it this way. I know, for example, here in the UK, with the potato processes that we're working with, because they've spent money on R&D and so on and so forth, they own exclusivity for that particular variety of potato products. That's how it works here. So in Kenya, if the government spends uh, the money on R&D, they may then say, well, we are going to own the exclusivity and we might allow 
X companies and nine cents. It, it, it just depends on how they choose to do it in Kenya. But if, for example, a potato farmer or a processor has the capacity to number one, get them to do all the R&D, and then all, also has the technical know-how, by that I mean food scientists and all of that, then long-term, they benefit from that because it's their technology. I mean, it's their particular variety. They can then license that out to whoever wants to use it for the particular application. There are different ways of doing it. Okay. Can I make you want to weigh in on that IP question? That's a complicated one for me because I don't have the right answer. I don't know how that needs to be navigated, particularly because I'm fundamentally opposed to Monsanto's and all of these guys owning all IP and decimating sort of indigenous systems around uh, seeds and yeah. other open but seed systems. Wouldn't that be the, the solution? Because if we if seed potato demand, at least in our market, is like 300,000 tons a year, but we're only producing about 6,000, 7,000 tons of seed potatoes, and we need to increase yields. We need to essentially make sure that future potato varieties are able to cope with shorter rain seasons, drier growing conditions. I mean, that sounds like that's a prime opportunity for the states to step in and say, yeah, this is something we can invest in and commercialize as well. Of course. And I think it's beneficial for improved productivity and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and I think that try to answer your question specifically around who owns the IP on seed, I think we need to also navigate the issue of this protection around IP. How long is that and what are the consequences and what does that mean for farmers? Because I think some of this IP protections around seed actually end up oppressing farmers, sort of impacting by biodiversity because you kind of start to move towards uh, monocropping and very few seed varieties and so on. And so I think it's a problematic, it, it's something that needs to be navigated in a very careful manner. I don't necessarily think that the developer of the seed should own uh, the IP indefinitely. And because especially also the people who have the capacity to develop the seed are rarely governments. It usually tends to be large-scale agricultural firms elsewhere. And that is a valuable point because at the end of the day, you also have to address the question of even if you develop the seed and it's a fantastic cultivar, drought resistance, high yields, but can the small-scale farmer in Yandarwa, Nakuru, Maragret, can they actually afford it? That's just as important. As if, let me come back to you from on the question of demand and, and market size, because the, the thing that I find really amazing about all of this and some of the stats that, that Tim put out a little earlier was the amount of potatoes that actually does end up in the big restaurants, big hotel chains is relatively small to give us the lay of the land, so to speak. What's the total market layout looking like? Thanks for this. So to frame this opportunity or this market size, right, you've got to look at a couple of things. Okay. So the first thing you look at is, um, what is the total consumer spending? Okay. And in Kenya, I'll specifically talk about Kenya. And this is about two-year-old data, but it's about $60 billion, okay? This is total consumer spending. And out of which, 50% is spent on food, okay? So 50% is spent on food. And then out of that, $2 billion is, is dining out spend, okay? So just $2 billion, all right? And if you break that down even further, okay? 30 to 40% of a restaurant's PL 
is what is called food, beverage, and packaging. So it's that line on the profit and loss account that says how much does a restaurant spend on buying ingredients, drinks, and packaging. And that makes it about a, a $680 million opportunity, right? And out of that, just about $200 million is fast food. Now let's look at what ingredients are used in fast food. So potatoes would be about 5 to 10%. Okay, it was, it was specifically talking about potatoes. I'll talk about potatoes, right? 5 to 10% is potatoes. And that is a, if you now look, do the math, it's just about a $20 million opportunity, just not enough, right? For it to become a sizable opportunity supplying to the food industry. Now as a country, yes, of course, it could be a bigger, and you do know 26, $30 billion is spent on food and beverage by Kenyans, right? Every year. So that's the framing of the opportunity. So the market is actually much smaller than we initially think it is. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that, that's what I, I kept on saying. In some ways, the packaging industry is actually bigger than the potato industry. Okay. And that's also where an opportunity is, right? Like for us at this moment, we've actually looked at all packaging suppliers in the market and they're just not able to supply the standards that we need. Okay. Of course, the bags, so companies like paper bags, which have been in the industry for 40 years, 50 years, they're doing a pretty amazing job. But you just go look at KFC bags, right? They're still imported. You look at some of the, the packaging, it's still imported. When we look at our packaging, okay, even that is 90% imported. And we would love to move it to local, but the local suppliers just cannot get that quality that we need. Is that, like, is that a question of the ability to scale up? Is it a question of them not having the capital they need to actually deliver, uh, to both meet the quality targets that you have at a specific price point? The bottleneck there is actually, to my experience, has been just the thinking around what packaging industry can be, okay? And you go speak to some of the biggest players in the market, and they're still not even thinking in that line of where a, a country like Egypt, for example, is thinking, right? If you look at Nigeria, which is now also thinking, starting to think that way. Egypt says paper packaging is where it is. They're innovating on the packaging side. If you look at the top packaging supplier over here, okay, who makes these craft boxes, we call them. You put that craft box in microwave and you try to heat the food and it has a plastic lining. So it actually doesn't work. And they don't have the capability to do a leak-proof packaging without doing that. I wouldn't say it's capital because they just got invested in by a company from South Africa. It's just thinking about how big this can be. And it also comes down to entrepreneurs, right? The market size opportunity. I just told you that packaging is actually a bigger opportunity than potatoes in, in this country, in East Africa, actually, at least for the restaurant industry. It's about 10% of the PNL, which is on packaging. And that's barely being touched by local entities. It's being touched. Well, I'm, what I would say is uh, the plastic side is very well taken care of. Okay, so you've got companies like TechPack, that they're doing this plastic packaging, aluminum packaging, but that's not where the world is moving to, right? So if you look at some of our investors, they actually make us, we have to do an audit every year on how much plastic we use in our packaging. And we actually use about 2% of plastic in our packaging. And, and unfortunately that is all imported, the, the non-plastic. Okay, let, let me just address this to, and this is gonna to go to you, Leonard and, and Mohammed as well, because how we deliver the produce to the end consumer, to people up and down the chain. So the, the spuds get off of, off the farmer's hands. They get into a cold storage facility. They then get into like a central kitchen, I believe, of some sort. We're essentially also trying to reduce the amount of plastics that we have up and down the entire production chain. But how big an opportunity is that? Or more importantly, how, 
critical is it, Leonard and Mohammed, for you to essentially have as much of that packaging sourced within the local economy? Leonard, do you want to take on that? Yeah, I think uh, I'll start by saying what I said in the interview yesterday is that most of us are reluctant importers. We don't want to import. If we could find it locally at a fair price, we would take it up locally at, at that price. Uh, and the quality issues that Asif has mentioned are, are, are sorted. Our preference would be to source locally. And it's better for the economy. It's better for the ecosystem. But how much of that can you replace locally? Because I, I understand, yes, you're a reluctant importer. The things have to operate to a specific price points. But if we're going to meet these lofty targets that we have, we've got to do something about it, right? Let me answer that question with a, a comment on the size of the restaurant industry. When I was starting my career in 2000 in the local industry, the largest restaurant chain was six units. The largest restaurant chain in the country now is heading to 100 units. So the same with the supply side, it can be scaled up if the capital is provided and the investment is there, which is what I think is a conversation that we should be having in addition to, to this. Can we scale up the industry to meet the needs? Because the demand is there, the restaurants have grown. So can we scale up the supply side to meet that demand? And the investment case is, is a strong one. Here's a contradiction that I, I often run into in this particular space, though. If the demand is there, Clearly it's there, right? You've got a hundred, uh, you know, franchises with a hundred outlets out here. Kenyans are eating out a lot more. Why is access to capital still such a problem? I ask myself that question every day. I mean, it's a right. question we all want to answer, right? Um, yeah. it's great that we have local brands. It would suggest that, you know, the people who are spending money on these things, I'm seeing cash flow flowing in there. I'm, if I'm a banker, that's cash flow that I can predict for the next 10, 12 months, maybe out into two years, why not lend? I, I think that that's you're touching on a little bit. Yeah, Rama, just a quick one. So I'll, I'll just mention two things. So one is how many Kenyan entrepreneurs, and this I include farmers in there, I include, you know, are thinking on a, on a big scale. Okay, so what I mean is how many of them are thinking, looking at the sub-Saharan African opportunity, and that includes North Africa, okay? So let me give you an example of Gulf food. I don't know how many of you have heard of Gulf Food. It is the world's largest food expo and it happens in November and it also happens in February. So uh, the last one that I went to, guess how many Kenyan suppliers were there or just as the expo? Zero. Okay. So how many are thinking that big, right? Like how many are looking at the bigger opportunity and willing to invest into building those market opportunities for themselves, for Sub-Saharan Africa? As well. But 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 would it be fair for us to tell them, look, you're looking at slate them, for lack of a better word, for not looking at the bigger global market or the regional market, and yet they've got this domestic market that they're still trying to get a hold of. I mean, if, if it's difficult enough to build a business here, why would they be thinking about scaling up to hit markets abroad, for lack of a better word? So that comes to my second point. Now, we're looking to open in Accra, in Ghana, and... Do you know how many KFCs, now we're talking about potatoes, there are in, in Accra? There are 23 KFCs and more than the, that we have in Kenya, just in Accra alone. And we still don't have a packaging supplier in Accra who we want to use. And this is replicated. So the, what I'm trying to say is that this problem is replicated in every market that we look at. It is the same problem that we're encountering here. Are these people willing to you know, invest? Okay, there's a good point you mentioned. 
about access to capital, because I think that's also an important thing to touch on. It's really hard to, to get uh, investment for these people to invest in major machinery to be able to give us the packaging that we need. It is not easy. Mohammed, where do you want to weigh in on this question of capsule? Because I mean, I see more Kenyans going out. I see a lot of us. If you just use Instagram as a very crude um, data point, right? The number of shots that you have of people taking off their food, going out and saying, yeah, I was at this location, at this restaurant. That tells that Kenyans are willing to spend money um, on eating out. So why is access to capital still a problem? Not just for the hotel space, but also for suppliers as well. When you look at the food industry and specifically the restaurants, I'll take you back to the hotel industry. Hotel industry, specifically on the leisure market on the Kenyan coast, we were overly dependent on the international market until terrorism came calling and we ended up depending now looking inwards rather than outside. And Kenyans came in really, really to support us. When you look at even the festive period that just ended, 70%, actually 80% of the beds along the Kenyan coast were all occupied by Kenyans. They have got, they've got that surplus income. When TripAdvisor started, sometimes back in 2006, we had hardly 50 restaurants listed in Nairobi. Today we are looking at over 700 restaurants listed in Nairobi. You'll realize Lebanese restaurant, five of them, Japanese, five. Unbelievable. You talk of any cuisine, you'll get it in Nairobi. In fact, Nairobi can compete with any international city today when you look at the eateries and, and what have you. So the figures that have been given of $2 billion in terms of the supplies where, where people actually are spending uh, and that has been understated. It could even be more than that. Okay. So it's a big industry. And the banks, for instance, they do finance restaurants. Where we have a challenge is financing farmers because there's a big question mark. How secure? Oh, oh dear. I think we've lost Mohammed there for a bit. We're going to try and get him back. Leonard, do you want to jump in on that question of funding farmers? Because understandably, banks will say, look, the risk here between weather, I don't know what seed you used, I have no idea what your historical yields have been. I don't know what your farming practices are. Banks understandably say, look, I'm really not interested in trying to risk someone else's capital to try and lend to farmers. But if restaurants can provide a sort of partial risk guarantee for farmers, might that help in solving some of these problems we've been discussing in the last two hours? The question around providing supply on time, providing a quality that's consistent 24 seven. Is that the sort of risk that you'd be able to take on as a restaurant franchise? I think it's a case of appreciating their challenges, but having bigger challenges of your own to deal with in the sense that I still feel that the restaurant industry struggles to attract capital for investment and growth. And as a result, to start thinking about how to deal with capital for farmers uh, remains a challenge before you have adequately sorted out your own internal capital needs. There's been a credit risk guarantee scheme that the, the Kenyan government has been running for the last two years. Has that benefited anyone in the restaurant space at all? Or is it still a bit of a rumor? I think for us, it remains a rumor. I'm yet to hear, unless uh, some of my colleagues on the call have heard of beneficiaries of that. For us, we... We haven't had any restaurant business benefiting from that. Oh, wow. Interesting. Uh, well, if there's central bankers around here, that's certainly something we need to discuss. Um, as if no, no, I haven't heard of that actually. Again, I, I want to go back to, you know, this market opportunity size, right? Like if you look at the biggest deal, okay, on the F&B space, 
in the recent past from Sub-Saharan Africa is about $110 million when Java was sold to a branch, right? That's the biggest deal. That's a small size deal if you look at it from a global point of view, right? So we're, we're, we have a long way to go. Having said that, we do know it's about a $200 billion opportunity in Sub-Saharan Africa. So we, in the DNA of our company, is just to look at this as a big Sub-Saharan African opportunity. Use technology to empower our operations. Use technology to make sure that the guest experience is world-class. And use data to then drive growth. But would you be in a position to take on some of that risk that farmers essentially are facing? Because if, if, if their argument is that, look, we, yes, I hear you. We need better yields. We need you know, to invest in logistics. We need to invest in storage facilities. And all of that needs money. But if governments are not going to stump up that capital, can the rest of the supply chain perhaps help to do that? Is that the sort of risk you're willing to take on your balance sheet? I, I also am a partner in a coffee uh, business where we import our coffee from East Africa to New York. And about a month ago, I was in Neri looking at some farms. And what we saw was actually a little shocking as well, because about thousand small scale farmers we're looking at, and we talked to a number of them. And one of the biggest issue they had was their plants just dropping because of the cold. And then one of our, our partners who was a tech guy said, Hey, you know, this is such an easy problem to solve. You can just have a small device that tells the farmers whenever um, it needs to be looked at, which plants need to be looked at, which crops to be looked at. And if you look at how many farmers there were, you just in that small area was about thousand farmers. So some of these uh, problems can be solved in using technology, I would say. And some, of course, the capital side, if you ask me as uh, someone who's investing in this industry in Sub-Saharan Africa, it is really tough to go up the value chain. It does not make sense for us right now at this point to move up the value chain because then not just drives our focus, also drives away our cap into an area which we're not focused on. But if you look at now like Twiga Foods, right? They've done a yeah. great job. Even just looking at banana supply chain, they've actually built it up pretty well. Okay. So there's certainly an argument to be made for aggregation. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been having this conversation for the last almost a hundred straight minutes. I'd like to start bringing this to a close with some of the closing views, closing ideas that we need to consider, no matter how left field, no matter how radical from the speakers that we've had on this panel for the last two hours and a bit. Lenit, let's start with you. What are your closing views, your takeaways uh, from this conversation? What do we need to do so we don't have another great potato war on KOT? in 2023. Thanks, Ram. I've enjoyed this uh, quite a bit. I would say that we need to be inspired to build our own brands, which are serving our customers and building our farmers. And so that anyone who comes can compete with us on that, on our, build our own brands to an international standard. And that will require capital. So the funders out there, we need to start building mechanisms that will enable us to do that well. Then we can start getting worried about foreign brands holding us to standards of their own. And I see Ben Roberts uh, does agree with you in the conversation. Can that be your closing views? What do we need to take away from this episode? It's very rare for us to actually have a whole uh, big chunk of the Kenyan conversation. The Kenyan population is actually focusing on questions around government policy, agricultural policy, and just as important, how we treat our farmers. Absolutely. So I will say the same thing I said at the beginning that we need an agricultural sector that is well-organized, well-regulated, well-governed, and well-supported by the government. And 
a government has to take the responsibility of building out the infrastructure, supporting farmers effectively, and creating an ecosystem that allows farmers, smallholder farmers, to thrive and to benefit from uh, their farming activities. But also for youth, I know we keep talking about youth and agriculture, but we haven't done anything to make the sector attractive. A lot of the tech solutions, for example, that we are talking about, we are asking young people, including me 10 years ago, to innovate and deploy technology in ecosystems that are not optimized for their success. And so we need to do that work. The government needs to do that work. And for the private sector, we also need to keep, of course, demanding that multinationals also sort of extend these opportunities to us. But we also have to remember that the private sector is in the business of profit maximization. So when we talk about investments, no one is willing to invest in environments that are not sufficiently de-risked and that do not make sense in terms of creating economic or social value if the cost benefit and the business case doesn't make sense. And so the government still needs to step up. And I think we've had really constructive conversations around that. And also we need to make sure that this engagement is happening in partnership with all the stakeholders, the government, the farmers, the young people, and, and so on. All right. So we're going to sh skip over to Tim. You've been very patiently waiting and, and listening to this conversation. What, what are your key takeaways from the last two hours? I, I think that it's absolutely clear that we must be uh, consumer focused, at least in, 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 to the extent that we can increase market. And then, so that could be export, that could be innovating around other uses for potato. But then for, for someone like me, who has roots back home where we grew up, but to do a little bit more work around potentially aggregating in something to solve for food waste. Uh, there are some companies that are already doing exciting stuff around cold storage, but also potentially supporting some farmers if it were possible with creating the equivalent of production uh, credit report. There's a, there's a local company called Stenefa now that, that is doing a little bit of that, of that, putting farmers onto their platform and building yield and building farmer history so that banks can underwrite those farmers based on prior success and prior experience. I, I think that's my takeaway. It's been a fantastic uh, discussion and, and been a very good facilitator, Rama. Linda, your key takeaways from this conversation, what do we need to get out of the last two hours? I think what I can say based on my experience here in the UK is that there is opportunity in the potato processing sector, especially in the value addition. So where food preservation is concerned, where you can add value to the product because potato in itself is a low value product. But if you can add value to it, really that's where the money is because it is a 30 billion pound dollar industry is due to go to that in 2026. So there's money in it. I think what the, the Kenyan government can do via the innovation agency is really work with the farmers in regards to supporting them in R&D so that they can capitalize on the opportunity. I think I will leave it there. And in regards to the waste, you can actually produce power from potato waste, from the potato field. There's also opportunity in that. That's something that can be looked at. That's what we're doing here in the UK. So I think the, the country should have a look at 
other nations and what they're doing and see if they can apply that best practice. And if it makes financial sense, investors will come in because we've had a lot of interest from investors, but thus far we've decided to self-fund. But when we do need to do that, we know that there's interest in the area. Uh, I will leave it there for now. All right. Thank you very much. As if you've consistently driven on the point that we need to think bigger. We need to think instead of a little corner of East Africa, we need to think about the wide opportunity in Sub-Saharan Africa, in North Africa combined, in the CFTA. You got the closing words. Rama, thanks, man. You know, this has been great. Uh, thanks for inviting me, uh, Eric, as well. What I would say is I come from a marketing background, so I would say we need more storytelling. We need more great ideas. We need more brands. Leonard touched on this as well. We need local brands. Why are we just buying potatoes and not buying the great Kenyan gold potato, right? Like who's going to come up with that brand around it, right? Who's going to come up with that story around it? Or who's going to come up with a story around, you know, first class Kenyan vodka? Thank you. Exactly. I mean, there is a gin, a Procera gin that is being made in Kenya. And I don't know if it's sold in Kenya though, but it's sold in like the biggest. It's, you know, being sold in the UK. Yeah, exactly. And it goes for like $1,000, I think $2,000 per bottle. And it's done from Kenya. So it's. Some of these things just needs really brave entrepreneurs with crazy ideas who can then take this to the next level. So I would say the way Ethiopia has done with this coffee, you, you mentioned Yerkechef in New York, everyone knows it. The same way it can be done in every single vertical we think about. What we are doing is investing in the brand side. We're saying we can build local brands. We can build brands from Kenya specifically and take them global. So to give you an example, we're now in talks with a company in Dubai to how we can franchise some of our brands over there. It's something that we need to empower as well. Indeed, it certainly does. Just before I close out, a bit of a shout out to some of the gentlemen from Southern Africa who've been on the Twitter thread having a very vibrant discussion about local supply chains. Thank you. Thank you for your time and, and your attention. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a fascinating two hours talking about not just the humble potato, if nothing else, <laughs> if there's something else we're going to take out of this conversation, is that the humble potato is not ever just. A potato. Okay. And I think we're going to wrap it up there. Eric's having a small connection problem, but ladies and gentlemen, Asanteni Sanes with a fantastic conversation for the last two hours. You could have been doing pretty much anything else, <laughs> but you've been with us for the last uh, two hours on a Friday evening, no less, uh, in the first Mongo spaces of the year. Looking forward to having a lot more of these conversations in the course of 2022. We'll see you in the next one. Asanteni Sana.